Welcome to Blaze Health Podcast, an interactive space for the Black community and allies to learn about mental health and holistic wellness techniques. Get ready to illuminate your mind. Season two, episode two. I know it's been a couple of months, but we are here. And before we dive into our conversation today, I have a couple of announcements. So, first major announcement, I have started medical school, y'all. Yes, I started medical school. I'm in the trenches. I'm surviving, though, but it's a lot. Like, every day is something new, and... It's just so much thrown at you, and it's just like, wow. But I'm very thankful to have a black woman therapist who's helping me with grounding techniques and just helping me navigate this experience because it's a lot. It really is. And, you know, I'm leaning on things that bring me joy. So even creating this podcast, I've been really diving into uh, creating more mixes with music and stuff. So that's been helping me, and I'm getting back into journaling. So we here. Remember, seasonal depression is coming up. So if you are living in an area where you don't have access to sun or like, you know, you used to be used to the heat and now you're just surrounded by snow and it's cold, make sure you check out therapy lamps, LED lamps. I can link some more in the show notes. We had talked about that in season one. But yeah, so the second major announcement is that I'm sponsoring a major giveaway. Major giveaway with Dr. Vivid, AKA Dr. Ashley Elliott. She was the guest speaker on the last episode that was all about anxiety. And currently we are doing a giveaway to win either, listen, listen, listen. You can win either an entire calendar year of therapy with Dr. Vivid, or that's not, you know, you really like, "Mm, that's a little too much. You can win access to your choice of one of her virtual wellness groups, which they have different topics from LGBTQ plus issues to depression to parenting to neurodivergent. She has she has, she does it all. Okay, she's lit. So what you need to do, you're probably like, how do I find out about this? So if you're not plugged in, following on social media, you can visit the website. Yes, we finally have a website, y'all. It's blazehealth.info, B-L-A-Z-E-H-E-A-L-T-H dot I-N-F-O. That's where you can access basically one-stop hub for all things Blaze Health. We finally got a website. Yes, we love to see it. And that's where the applications are. You're really just either submitting um, some videos or if you don't prefer to do videos, you can type it out. And you can always email me um, if you have any questions or concerns. But please, please, please spread the word. I'm trying to really get the word out there um, to really impact, you know, if there's someone in your community who you know or feel would benefit greatly from winning this resource, please spread the word. Like, I think 
word of mouth, you know, that's where the power is locally. So if you could just spread it, each one, teach one, teach one, see, I don't even know. If you could just spread it around, I hope you apply. I hope you tell everybody around you to apply because it's only going to get bigger and better from here, okay? So yes, that is the second announcement, blazehealth.info, okay, blazehealth.info. So y'all know I always start with a little bit of research before we go into our topic, and today is all about ADHD, and there's a lot of data and research out there that really represents a major health disparity of black children going undiagnosed and untreated for ADHD. One study I found that was quite interesting was led by Dr. Paul Morgan, who is director of the Center for Educational Disparities Research at Penn State. He had analyzed um, over basically 1,070 U.S. elementary school children who had previously displayed above average behavioral, academic, or executive functioning the year before their initial ADHD diagnosis. And some of the results revealed that African-American children were 69% less likely to receive an ADHD diagnosis than their white counterparts. A follow-up study found that this disparity actually started way earlier. So before they even entered kindergarten, African-American children were 70% less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than white children. Kindergarten, okay? There appears to be a trend in the overdiagnosis of ADHD in white children. Dr. Morgan stated how a problem with ADHD overdiagnosis is that it contributes to stigma and skepticism towards those experiencing more serious impairments. In quotes, he said, it undermines a confidence in the disorder. If anyone can be diagnosed with ADHD, then what is ADHD? For those who have significant impairments, they may experience greater skepticism about the condition. Mental health resources are already scarce. Those with serious impairments could lose out. Which we can see, I feel, we can see this happening on TikTok and like just social media in general. I feel like a lot of people are talking about ADHD or like it's just like this huge thing now, like, you know? And I've seen a lot of sides to this discussion of how like, you know, it's good that we're seeing this representation. It's good we're seeing people talk about it. But then you also see the other side of people like, oh, it's just ADHD. Everybody has it. Oh, like, you know, the world's just convincing you have ADHD. And it's like, nah, you know, people out here fighting for their lives. They fight in their brains, you know, really trying to get through life, doing daily tasks because their brains are just different from what's quote unquote normal, right? And I think on that aspect as well, we see like this glamorization of ADHD where like, you know, people are really like, oh yeah, like this is what it's like, that's all cute. And you see other people really mad at that because they're just like, again, I'm fighting for my life. So I just thought that that was some really interesting research uh, to ground us for our conversation today. I'm, as always, I'm going to link everything in the show notes so that you can do the research on your own and dive in more and just continue to have those conversations with people around you. But we're going to get right into it because, you know, my goal is to be a little shorter with this because, you know, I always say that and as long as I am, but please, my brain. So, yeah, so we're going to go on ahead and continue to our guest speaker. And I feel like our guest speaker today, it's going to be amazing, y'all. She is neurodivergent herself and she has lived experiences of actually going through the statistics I told you about black children being underdiagnosed and undertreated. It took her until she got to medical school to finally understand what was going on. So sit back, relax, 
and enjoy this beautiful conversation that I had. Dr. Lucrece Rupert, MD, is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who currently practices at Gunderson Health System. She specializes in neurodiversity, which contains ADHD, autism, learning differences, and more, children with trauma, children in foster care, or who have been adopted, and adults with developmental disabilities. She received a BA in foreign language, Spanish, from the University of South Alabama. She completed medical school and adult psychiatry residency at the University of South Alabama. She completed her child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She currently aids in the fight towards racial, sexual orientation, gender identity, religious, a religious, disability, and neurodiverse equality through her work as co-founder of Physician Woman SOAR, which stands for Support, Organize, Advocate, Reclaim an organization of physician women that raises money, awareness, and educates for the aforementioned intersectional causes. She also serves her community through her participation in Black, which stands for Black Leaders Acquiring Collective Knowledge. She aims to help empower those with mental health diagnosis, disability, and slash or neurodiversity through her company, Insightful Consultant LLC, via speaking engagements, education, and training on a plethora of mental health and diversity related topics. She has also spoken at events for Rev. Jesse Jackson and the PUSH Coalition. Dr. Rupert is neurodiverse and disabled herself and is an adoptive parent of two wonderful children. She enjoys traveling, exploring new places, and spending quality time with her family. And without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation. So I guess I talk about a little bit about a little bit about what led me into psychiatry uh, specifically. So I actually have wanted to be a doctor since I was really young, like five or six. Like I actually don't even remember. My mom just told me that I was saying I want to be a doctor and she used to like take me to the library and we looked up what being a doctor was and I wanted to work with kids and all of that. So I always said I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, but at the same time, I've always wanted to work with kids that were abused or that had trauma. Um, and I think just in in, in my community or in my circles, there wasn't really a knowledge of psychiatry. Um, so I think I've always wanted to be a child psychiatrist. I just didn't know the words for that. Um, but as I, you know, went through high school, college, medical school, um, I actually, on my uh, medical school rotation for psychiatry, it was my last rotation of what we call our third year and fourth year is kind of where you take um, rotations that are, are 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 of interest to you or are helpful to what you've decided to apply to. So whatever field you apply to. So I had my fourth year planned out. I had like all of these pediatric rotations chosen. And here I am on my last rotation. And I'm like, I'm just going to use this month to study for my boards. And like, I'm, you know, I don't want to be a psychiatrist. So I'm not even worried about that. Um, so I go in and the physician that I was working with was like, oh, you're not going to be a pediatrician. You're going to be a child psychiatrist. And I was like, oh, I'm not. <laughs> And then by the end of that four-week rotation, I was like, oh, by the way, so could you write me a letter of recommendation because I'm going to be a child psychiatrist? He was like, told you. So I really just loved it. I loved, um, you know, a lot of a lot of my classmates hate, well, not hate it. I won't say hate it, child psychiatry, but it, but it's, it's not a fun, I mean, it is a fun specialty, but it's a difficult specialty at times, right? So a lot of the feedback I had gotten was, you're going to cry every day. Like, it's so sad. Like, all of the stories are so sad. And that is true. Like, it definitely can be sad. But I really liked helping kids and 
with kids, with adults too, but I feel like with kids, you can sometimes really get in there and change like their whole trajectory of their life. Um, and that's like, it's just been really um, exciting and cool to see. And so that's how I kind of started in, into psychiatry. As far as getting diagnosed with ADHD, again, that wasn't a thing in my community growing up. So in medical school, I realized I had ADHD, um, but I actually didn't try to get tested because I was like, people are just going to think I want like stimulants to help me get through tests and all of that. Not really, again, not knowing much about psychiatry then, not really realizing just how much of a burden not taking medication was for me and how much harder everything was for me than, you know, than the typical person. Um, but I, I struggled through, well, I struggled through the first two years of medical school because that's the our book, you know, where we kind of do the book learning. And that was difficult. Year three and four was more clinical. And that, that wasn't as hard for me because I like clinical hands-on. Like that's how a lot of people with ADHD learn. Um, most of my evaluations were good, except for they all had the same comment about not, not finishing notes on time, being disorganized, you know, the regular ADHD stuff. But my clinical knowledge and my relationship with patients were good. Um, so I finished medical school, still hadn't been officially diagnosed, um, went to, or actually I think I did try to get officially diagnosed in medical school, and I went to this old white man psychologist who um, basically did, I think he did an IQ test, I don't even think he did anything else, and basically put in his report that I was struggling because I wasn't really smart enough to be in med school, not that I had ADHD. So, you know, there's bias right there. Um, but anyway, I ended up, you know, in psychiatry resident as a as an intern. Um, I had a really big board, we call our step three, and it's over two days. So it's like eight hours one day and like six hours the next day, which is just an extreme amount of time to be sitting still taking a test. So I definitely flunked step three. And after that, I was like, the first thing I had ever flunked in my life, right? Um, and I was like, I, like, I'm not doing this. Like, I need to get tested and, you know, just get on medication for ADHD. And I went, um, I went to a therapist and they wanted me to, um, a lot of parents that are listening are probably familiar with what they call the Vanderbilt checklist, which is basically just a checklist you use for kids to check off symptoms. And so they wanted me to fill, it was like an adult version of, of that, and I don't remember the name, but they wanted me to fill one out, get a friend to fill one out, and get a colleague to fill one out. So I should got my best friend to fill one, and then I got my, um, my program director. And I bring that up because my program director was actually, I think, a really good psychiatrist. But I remember him saying to me that he didn't believe in adult ADHD until he met me. <laughs> And so this is a psychiatrist who's working with adults for, you know, um, he wasn't super old, but I, pretty at least 10, 15 years, um, who didn't think, who thought that, you know, the, the prevailing thought in psychiatry used to be that you grew out of ADHD, right? So um, he didn't believe in adult ADHD. And good or, for the good or bad, I changed his mind about that. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, that was a journey, just kind of learning how for me it's, it was more learning like what is adhd how that's affected like it made so many things make sense um about my younger years um and especially as a as a as a girl um in school that wasn't necessarily a behavior problem i was very impulsive though but i wasn't a behavior problem was smart enough to get you know good grades um so definitely overlooked for really clear signs of adhd i mean i Anyone who has ever been around me has no doubt that I have ADHD. So it's very clear signs, um, but it was overlooked for years and years just because I was able to get by. Wow, yes. Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing that. Like even from everything you just shared, I have like so many questions to go off of that. 
And like, you just really touched on so many important topics, I think, with the experience of like, even thinking if something's wrong and trying to get help for that, and like how long it can take and the barriers for that. Um, and before we even dive a little bit deeper, I would love if you could just ground us in this idea of neurodivergence, right? Like, what does that actually mean? Because I feel like, you know, we hear it a lot. And it was funny, I was just talking to my classmate today. And she was like, what does that mean? Like, what is that? And it was funny, because I feel like a lot of times people see the word, but they're not really sure what it is. So if you could break it down in your own terms and for the listeners, like, that would be amazing. It's definitely a, a catch off catch-all phrase, sorry. Sometimes I talk so fast that I <laughs> catch myself up. But it's a catch-all phrase for people that are not neurotypical, meaning they're they're not having the typical development that, that um, has been expected. Um, and we know, you know, that society kind of decides what's what's normal and what's not but so we're going based off that i'm not saying that you're abnormal but going based off that is people that don't have that typical development um kind of colloquially is used most for people that have adhd and autism i think that those are the two biggest communities that use neurodiverse um, or neurodiversity technically it really can mean people that have like complex ptsd because that changes your brain so it's thing that changes your brain from typical bipolar disorder um, but i think the most popular use and probably if you see that use somewhere is going to be referring to people that are autistic or adhd okay thank you thanks for breaking that down and so when we're talking about adhd how would we define that and i see a lot of times that adhd can be coupled with other things such as like I saw it was um, rejection sensitive dysphoria, or there's like time blindness, or like ADD. Like, can you just kind of break those terms down for us in terms in like kind of help us visualize like what that can look like or what it means? Yeah, so I'm gonna read just the D so the DSM criteria, and then I'll talk a little bit about how that looks in different people. Mm -hmm. So the DSM is what we use in psychiatry and psychology for diagnostic criteria. Um, it's what everybody in the United States uses. Um, so it's literally the list of symptoms that you have to have to qualify for ADHD. Um, and ADHD comes in two types. So there's the inattentive type, well three I guess, inattentive type, hyperactive type, and then combined if you have symptoms of both. So um, you have to have symptoms for greater than six months in more than two settings, meaning that you can't just have these uh, symptoms at home and nowhere else, or at school and nowhere else. It has to be kind of in more than two settings. Um, has to negligibly affect you in some way, so academically, social, occupational functioning. And you have to be less than age 17 when you start developing these symptoms. Um, and that really is important because a lot of time people, when they get older, start having attention problems that are related to other things that are important to find out. And they'll start thinking, oh, I have ADHD. But if you've never had those symptoms before, and that doesn't mean that you were diagnosed as a child because you can most definitely be diagnosed as an adult because you were missed, but you had those symptoms before 17, whether they were diagnosed or not. Um, and so inattentive type, just read through the list. Um, displays poor listening skills, loses in our misplaces items needed to complete activities or tasks, sidetracked by external or unimportant stimuli, forgets daily activities, diminished attention span, lacks ability to complete schoolwork and other assignments or to follow instructions, avoids or is disinclined to begin homework or activities requiring concentration, fails to focus on details in our mates thoughtless mistake in schoolwork or assignments. Now that last, well, all of these, <laughs> I actually had all of these, but um, <laughs> but the last one, like that, my whole school, my whole 
my whole school career, even including college and medical school. Um, like I did okay, but there were definitely, I would go back and read tests and I knew the answers that I had gotten wrong, but I had just, I had just not completely read the question. And so it was that not, you know, focusing on details or kind of rushing through because my brain is rushing. So hyperactive, hyperactive symptoms, squirms when seated or fidgets with feet, hands, marked restlessness that is difficult to control, appears to be driven by motors, often on the go, lacks ability to play and engage in leisure activities in a quiet manner, incapable of staying seated in class, overly talkative, impulsive symptoms as difficulty waiting, turn, interrupts or intrudes into conversations and activities of others, impulsively blurts out answers before questions are completed. And you have to have more than five of those symptoms um, to be diagnosed with ADHD. Okay, you heard it here, folks. That was the breakdown, okay? Um, thank you for that, that was really helpful. And to clarify, you said it needs to be within the span of six months in two different settings? Yeah, so you have to have these uh, symptoms, like sustained symptoms for six months mm -hmm. in more than one place. So like, say if you had a head injury per se, and you had uh, difficulty concentrating from a concussion, then you wouldn't call mm -hmm. that ADHD, if, you know, because it's specifically from a concussion. It's not going to last longer than six months. Well, unless you have repeated right. concussions, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> We're keeping right. things simple <laughs> for right now. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah. Now, and I know you asked, like, how does that look? So how does that actually look? So, um, you know, for kids, I actually think that criteria is, is pretty self-explanatory. It looks like that in kids. But when you become an adult, like, how does impulsivity or hyperactivity look? Like, you don't have, for most adults don't necessarily have anyone telling them to stay in their seat. So how do you know that you can't sit in your seat or that you're fidgeting? Um, so it looks differently, different definitely in adults. Um, it's more, you know, kind of the smaller, which, which I call hyperactive movements, but it's not the big, I'm running around getting out of class. So people that are kind of constantly moving, playing with a pencil, foot tapping all the time, um, you know, constantly just shuffling papers, things like that. It might look like in, inattention. Um, you're not in school anymore, so you're not missing schoolwork, right? But inattention might look like um, your lights being cut off because you forgot to pay the bill two months straight, which happened to me while I was in medical school. <laughs> I'm crying. I came home one day and was like, I was like, oh, I went straight upstairs, so I didn't even try to turn on lights. So I went upstairs and tried to turn on the light in my bathroom, and I was living in an apartment then. So I'm like, oh, I need to call them to come fix the light because it's broke. <laughs> And then I like go try to turn on the light in the bathroom and it was off too. And I was like, okay. I, I was on the phone with somebody. I was like, I think I need to call you back. I think my lights are cut off. Oh my God. Okay. Side note. I think it's so funny that you're saying this because the only reason I feel like I'm staying alive right now is because of auto pay. Like I have forgotten oh gosh, yes. the one thing that I didn't have on auto pay was like my, um, my Wi-Fi, and it's funny you said for two months you didn't pay. So the other day, like I got a text. They were like, "Hey, it's time to pay," and I was like, "What?" I go to the app, and I was like two payments behind. I said, "Oh my god!" I said, "Whoa!" So I have to set up the the auto pay for that. But yeah, that's funny that you said that because yeah. I'm like, "Oh my god!" Definitely live on auto pay now. Right. So yeah, it's gonna look different in adults. It's gonna look like um, maybe changing jobs frequently. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I know I've read some article lately that you kind of need to reevaluate your job every couple of years to move upward, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the like calculated moving forward in your field. It's changing jobs frequently because you're bored or because, um, you know, maybe you have the rejection, uh, rejection sensitivity dysphoria and you don't like, you know, getting those evaluations that might have things you need to work on. So you just go to a whole different job. Yeah. Like people do that. Mm. Um, you know, it looks like lots of speeding tickets, even accidents. Like um, people with ADHD actually have a higher rate of death from accidents because wow. of that impulsivity or inattention in, you know, in areas that are important like driving. Um, so yeah, it looks differently, but the base symptoms are still the same. Wow, okay, thank you. Um, is there also anything linked with ADHD and like forgetting stuff like, or just like misplacing items? Is that a thing as well? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, part of it is the inattention part. So you're just not paying attention, like when you put it down yeah. or when you uh, hear the date or when you hear the phone number. Um, and so it's just never formed in, in that part of the memory of your brain. But yeah, uh, definitely that's, I literally ask, it's, you know, I see mostly kids. So my kids, I ask about um, losing things all the time, especially your phone. Like if a teenager is losing their phone a lot, that's not typical for teenagers, right? Cause it's glued to their hip these days. Um, and then I ask about like, how does your book bag look and how does your locker look? Cause that shows the disorganization. Um, so yeah, definitely that, those are symptoms of ADHD. With research and things, you know, in the research world, is there any like one root cause for like you getting ADHD? Is it like genetics, environment, is it both? Like how can someone like, I guess, how can that manifest in someone? So I guess, um, there's, I guess there's not a, a one train of thought on that. My kind of opinion is that there's like genetic ADHD, like that's just the way brains have developed. And I actually think it's an evol evolutionary positive. Um, not granted, it, is, it isn't for most people right now, unless you're allowed or you have the freedom to like be in a creative field where you can kind of make that work for you. Um, but you know, the history of like being in school or working eight hours a day is pretty recent as far as human history. So that ability to pay attention, because they call it attention deficit, but it's really not a deficit, right? It's like you're paying attention to too many things and maybe not the thing that's most important to other people because it's not super important to you. Um, but right. that ability to pay attention to multiple things, um, that ability to multitask, that ability to come up with you know these creative out of the box ideas, it's actually very benef beneficial to human growth um, you know, until, and even still beneficial to human growth, like a lot of scientists and the inventors and stuff are normally people that are ADHD artistic. Um, and, but, you know, with that advent or with the invention of going to school and going to work and sitting in an office eight hours a day, that's when it became a quote, quote, disorder because you have to figure out how to make it through the school day or through your work day. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think, I feel like I'm getting deep now. Like, I think it's interesting when you when you view it that way. Like, you know, you're saying like, you know, this is something, and I think this can also talk into the, the stigma of it. Like, even right. if it's something you do have, like, you shouldn't feel ashamed of it because like you said back then, like, that's literally helping society advance. And like, you literally kind of have like the ability to think outside the box and do right. all these amazing things. But when we think about putting into the system of like, you know, that mm -hmm. nine to five and capitalism and professionalism and this, right. it's like, that's confining it. So yeah, I think yeah. you were spinning right there. That was, that was important to know. <laughs> what would you say are some misconceptions versus realities of ADHD? Like, 
you know how sometimes people just think one thing about it and it's like that's literally not how it is like what would you say if you have even like one example about it that could be important for people to know yeah I think the two biggest is that if you're smart and you're doing well in school you don't have ADHD like I definitely went into parents um actually not a lot of parents but normally when it's one parent believes and one parent doesn't the other parent is like well they make good grades in school and they pay attention you know when they want to pay attention and I'm like that literally IQ is completely separate from ADHD <laughs> and normally if you have a high IQ you can figure out like these these workarounds to to kind of do what you need to do so I think that's one of them is like your IQ has nothing to do with ADHD um and then the other one is just like the being lazy or being bad right like kids um are normally told they're bad if they have ADHD adults I guess don't generally get told that they're bad but may get told that they're lazy or that they're just not living up to their potential like a lot of people with ADHD hear that right like you have the potential but you're not doing it but they're not doing it because they don't have the support and the accommodations and our medication they need to make that happen thank you okay now with diagnosing because I know you mentioned even in your story you know it took you a while to finally get diagnosed. Like you said, it was overlooked and just all these different barriers for you to finally get the care that you needed. Now, how early can ADHD be diagnosed? And what do you think, this was actually a question submitted uh, by one of the listeners, shout out. <laughs> what do you think are ways we can try to increase the number of black kids being treated for and like diagnosed for ADHD? Like, mm -hmm. How would you, like, you know, how would you envision that being and, like, kind of how can we help improve that? Yeah, so I actually just did an article. Well, I did an article a few months ago, but it just came out today. So I might send that to you after so you can put it in the show notes because it talks a little bit about the disparities of ADHD and black kids. But as far as the youngest diagnosed, I think a lot of doctors give an arbitrary age of six because that's when you kind of start school. Um, I'm really comfortable with ADHD. I treat kids younger than that. I generally only treat kids younger than that. Like even if I diagnose you with ADHD or three or four, I don't treat it unless you're doing dangerous things, right? Like I don't care if you're hyperactive in your daycare, but I do care if like at three or four, I don't care if you're hyperactive, <laughs> Cause, you know, but I do care if you're like jumping off um, stairways and, you know, running into the street cause you're so impulsive. So I have had patients that I treated at three or four. Um, I think that's the youngest that I've diagnosed, but that's also probably the youngest that's been brought to me. Um, but I think most physicians, even child psychiatrists, are are not necessarily comfortable treating before like age five or six. So part of it is educating the black community that ADHD is a real thing and not just a behavior problem. And I find it really interesting. Um, so obviously, you know, in the black community, we take, um, like behavior, like doing well in school and misbehaving in school very seriously. Although the stereotype is that black people don't care about their kids doing well in school or behaving in school. So a lot of, so it's kind of multifactorial, right? So there's the black community that's like, well, no, I could just get you in shape, you know, like the way my mama got me in shape. And then there's the teachers that saying, oh, this behavior is just because they're black and probably from a broken home or blah, blah, you know, whatever the stereotype. And so both of those are keeping the kid from getting the, the, um, the help that they need in different ways. So, um, for on the community side is addressing in the black community educated on ADHD. It is a real thing. It's not going to be slinked away. Um, it, you know, it is, that's not a thing. Um, like you cannot change the way that somebody's brain has developed. 
Um, and I think the opposite end on the educate, like normally it's the teachers who kind of notice things, right? Because they're with them. Most, the teacher, teachers are actually with kids most of the day, um, more than anybody else. So, you know, it's realizing that this behavior is, it's really addressing your own biases, right? And like realizing that this behavior is not typical, even though, you know, the thought might be you think it's typical for black children, it's not typical for any right? Um, so addressing your own bias. I think the other issue, um, which is a fair issue, is that the black community doesn't trust, trust the medical, um, doesn't trust medical professionals which is completely fair. They have every right not to. There have been many things and many reasons and many experiments and, you know, just day-to-day bias. Even, like I said, for me, old white dude psychologist guy, <laughs> to not trust the black, I mean, to not trust the medical community. Um, so I think that the medical community has to have a reckoning. And um, there's a book called Medical Apartheid that talks about, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but I know a lot of have not heard of it so that talks about the history of medicine when it relates to how we have been horrible to black people um and and indigenous people and really just any people of color and women everybody that was (laughs) (laughs) so uh so there's that distrust that is fair and we need to work like we i'm saying we as in the medical uh, community need to work to change that like we don't need to put the onus on patients to trust us like we need to become trustworthy so that they can trust us yeah 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 i definitely agree too i think you know i'm only i'm I'm only a baby in the medical school game right now but just the both sides like you were saying like you know the little experience of me growing up with my family and in my community but also seeing like the medical side like i think both need to be doing work to kind of help reduce this stigma and like make it okay for like black kids to like validate their experiences and get the help that they need and not be like you know treated differently just because how they look so i see both sides working together to try to like make this better um and i think definitely even just speaking more from like just you know our families and our communities like more conversations like this and like being okay with like talking about it and validating each other um i think it's going to be very helpful because a lot of times it's not until we're older where we're finally like you know oh you know something's going on like <laughs> what what is this yeah right right yeah. and a lot of people talk about generation z but i adore gen z like they are like you finna figure out what's wrong with me i don't feel the correct like you gonna treat me right you gonna figure out what's wrong like we finna do this and i adore it like bring it like make us pay attention <laughs> oh my gosh yes oh my god i'm gonna shout out my sister <laughs> my sister real quick <laughs> I have a younger sister. Oh my gosh, I talk about her all the time, but she inspires me so much because one, she already knows boundaries. She knows how to speak up for herself. She knows how to advocate for herself. And like, she's gonna tell you straight, you know? And like, it's like, I don't know. It's something about that. They're they out here. So yeah, when we talk about treating ADHD, this was another question submitted uh, by a listener. They wanted to know, is medication necessary and can ADHD be cured? Or is it kind of something you just live with? No, it is. You cannot be cured. It's something you live with. Is medication necessary? I think that depends. Um, ADHD is one of the few diagnoses that medicine is absolutely gold standard to help with treatments. But we also know there's a lot of people that don't respond well to stimulants. I'm one of them. I'm actually not on stimulants anymore because I just didn't have good side effects or I had bad side effects from them. Um, 
I did recently start the new uh, non-stimulant medication, Cobra, so I will let y'all know how that goes. But um, so so research definitely shows that med that medication for ADHD is far superior to any other treatment, if you can tolerate the medication. Um, that said, what are you treating? So like one thing I learned when I was in, in residence Fellowship. I don't know, one of them. Anyway, when I was still in training, <laughs> um, is I had a an attending that used to work with, and he never told me who, obviously, patient confidentiality, but he used to work with a famous, like, I think, rap star, R&B star, whatever. Um, and so that person was not treated. And they weren't treated because they had everybody to do stuff for them. Like, they had a personal assistant who could keep all their bills straight, who could do all of their appointments. Um, so it really depends on what you need. If you need medication to get through school, to get through your job, um, then take the medication. Like, don't take it trying to be superwoman. Like, you know, take the medication. Um, medication, I think, is generally helpful for the vast majority. Um, there are certain people that just can't tolerate it. And when you can't tolerate it, you have to look to other things. And even if you are taking medication, you still want to look to other things, other things. Um, ways of coping to make sure you know like calendar is my life everything is on my calendar and not only is it on my calendar if it's really important I also have a separate alarm on my clock for it <laughs> um so those kind of things like in school I really got through school using flashcards and you know looking back it made sense because it it, it helps to hold my attention because it's really quick like I'm asking a question and I'm answering it um, once I got to medical school you know being a medical student there's way too much information to use flashcards. <laughs> so that's when things became a struggle for me because I no longer had the skill that I had developed out, you know, out in the world. Um, so yes, medication is generally helpful. If you can tolerate it, I would, t I would at least try it. And you're gonna have to, unfortunately, a lot of psychiatrists still trial and error. And I know that can be very frustrating for patients and parents and families, but it is still trial and error. So you, you will have to try. Well, I mean, I have some patients that first thing they use it works for them for like their whole life and that's great but that's not most people i know y'all was really enjoying that conversation we just got to take a little break real quick enjoy the dj amber mini mix and we'll get right back into it uncle johnny made my dress that she'd spend that she looks a mess uncle johnny made my dress that she'd spend that she looks a mess you already know you gave a dj dj amber on the one thing too Yeah, I'm a dance with somebody. Ooh, 
So you may have to try numerous things to see what works. If it comes to a point where you just can't tolerate medication, there definitely are other things that you can do, like exercise is helpful for ADHD, even if you're on medication. Exercise is helpful for ADHD. Um, like I said, these life skill things that you want to bring in. But, um, but yeah, I encourage medication if you need it. If you're able to, like, do without, and when I say do without it, a lot of people could get through their job okay and can get through maybe school day okay without medication, but they're not looking at the other areas of their life, right? Like, are your relationships okay? Like, are you having um, trouble with friendships because you're impulsive and say the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, you know, like for me, one of the things that I really hope the, the 12B that I'm on works with and one of and the main reasons that I'm even trying anything else is that I impulsively yell. Like when I get irritated, I just start yelling. Um, and it's, it is definitely part of And I'm not using that as an excuse because it's not an excuse. It's definitely part of my ADHD. I hate it. And I hate it basically related to my kids. Honestly, everybody else, they can do it. <laughs> but I don't want to yell at my kids. And so that is something that I need to find something to treat that. Like that is something that I have tried many times with many different therapy tools to use. And it is, it's just a symptom of my ADHD that I have to find something that can treat it. So you want to look at your whole life. If you can get by in your whole life without medication, I don't care. I have patients that are not on medication because they're doing, they're doing fine without it. They've developed their skills. Um, but if you are not getting by, I definitely encourage you to consider right. medication. Okay. So it, it just kind of depends on the person, their life, and like what works for them. It's not one set, like, you know, this is gonna cure you, right. like you can't. And even different stages of life, like there might be stages where you do fine without medication and then maybe you get a raise and then now you're suddenly, you're suddenly responsible mm. for a team and that's just too much on you and now you need medication. So really it's not only person specific, but it's also life yeah. experience yeah. specific. So always just kind of evolving as you evolve in every stage of your life, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, very insightful. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, would you be able to speak on some of the negative experiences you may have you may have had with your medication, like any symptoms you had from that that was just like I need to switch? Yeah, I also have chronic fatigue, and um, all stimulants and all stimulant-like medication, because there are medications that are not stimulants but they work similar. Um, all of them make my chronic fatigue worse, um, and it's something I kind of probably should have picked up on earlier because I was one of those so people with ADHD that use stimulants normally stimulants calm them down right like we don't get amped up on stimulants um but I remember drinking coffee as a kid to go to sleep <laughs> like not to keep wow. me up to go to sleep <laughs> so that's the kind of effect that stimulants have on me and that's definitely the kind of effects when I started taking it for my ADHD it had it it made my chronic fatigue worse which made my depression worse and it was just I had to get off that that cycle <laughs> that mm -hmm. that very go round um most people though so that is actually it's not super rare but it's not normally the main reason people get off of stimulants um i think most people have a lot of that people that end up not being able to tolerate stimulants they either have like gi symptoms like having to use a bathroom or just increase in irritability um I, I would say that in my practice those are probably the two biggest symptoms that lead to people not being able to tolerate medications okay okay got you and I know you already spoke how on like, you know, some people will utilize, like you have some clients who haven't even touched medication and they're like doing really well doing other techniques. Um, could you like kind of center like what some of those techniques could look like, like any other holistic wellness tools people could use if they really aren't medication people? Yes, meditation. So 
when I used to hear people tell me that meditation helps relieve well with ADHD, and this was after I was a psychiatrist, <laughs> I would like roll my eyes and laugh and be like, do they know people with ADHD? <laughs> like, how are we meditating? But I think the, the misconception for meditation is that you sit there with your mind blank and just kind of, um, you know, that meditating is clearing your mind. And that's actually not what meditation is. Actually, so during the whole pandemic, um, they were given free, like, Headspace to, you know, to medical professionals. So I signed up for Headspace, and the guy on there was like, you know, meditation, it does not clear your mind. You're still going to have those thoughts, but meditation is realizing that you're having those thoughts and returning back to your breath or returning back to your focus. And I was like, oh, now it makes sense. <laughs> so, yes, meditation is very helpful, but I think going into it knowing that you're, I mean, like your mind is still going to be your mind. But it's learning how to focus and even realizing that, okay, my mind's wondering, let me bring it back. And so that translates into real life. Like when you're doing something, you're like, oh, okay, my mind's wondering, let me bring it back. So meditation is really helpful. Like I said, exercise, food, um, you know, a lot of food as medicine is a thing. So eating healthy, um, a lot of physicians, or I would say most physicians are not really taught a lot about food as medicine or haven't been in the past. But that is changing. There's a big push to teach healthy lifestyle um, as part of like our, our management tools, right? Um, and so I think some people go off the deep end or like, well, if you do this is that diet, you won't have ADHD. That's not a thing, but you can eat to, fool your, to fuel your brain in a better way. Um, what are some other like more holistic? Um, fish oil, so taking fish oil tablets, that's health, that's good for brain health. Okay, my aunt, my aunt, oh my gosh, side note, she used to make me take that <laughs> growing up, and I didn't know <laughs> how to so swallow. Gross, yeah, I didn't know how to swallow, so I had to eat it, and it was just horrible. It was like, hmm, you know, I've been feeding this to Gary for years, and I don't even know what it tastes like. What is it, Peterson? I'm not sure. I feel a disturbance. It was not cute, yeah. There are cute. some, because obviously that's the biggest complaint. There are some newer ones, and I don't know. I don't know which ones offhand. But there are some newer ones that are better with, like, taste and smell. <laughs> but they are good. For, so fish oil is good for brain health. Uh, uh, something else that I recommend um, to a lot of, like, my more holistic, don't want to get on medication. I don't know. Let me be clear, though. Natural things can be dangerous too because the people are like oh i want it to be all natural i mean carbon monoxide is natural you can't breathe that in so i don't <laughs> so even though like man-made medication is not bad and natural does not automatically equal good but there are definitely things that if you're kind of more on the um holistic or um not wanting to take medication size there are things you can do magnesium magnesium doesn't necessarily help with ADHD, i guess but a lot of people with ADHD have comorbid anxiety, and it does help with anxiety, and it helps with sleep, which a lot of people with ADHD have issues with sleep. So um, those are some of the things out there. The other things would just be life skills. So like like I said, figuring out um, like how to do your schedule, whether it's your phone, whether it's writing it out, whether it's you know uh, a calendar on your wall every day that you can check and make sure. Um, so kind of developing those skills. Um, I was recently on different. No, was it a podcast? I'm sorry, I've been doing so much stuff recently. I don't know. I think it was like a, um, I don't remember what it was. But anyway, the guy was talking about how he had the, like color changing lights in his room or in his house. 
and he will set the lights to change a color at a certain time to remind him to do certain things. Um, I thought that was a, a pretty cool idea. You probably have to write down what the colors mean at first though, because I was like, I did that. So I, I set my room to change color to blue, and then I was like, why is it changing to blue? I didn't write it down, and I didn't know. <laughs> why is this blue? <laughs> Why is this blue right now? <laughs> I have to write it down until it kind of gets in my head. Okay, blue means this, red means this. But I do think that's a really, really neat idea. I had never heard of it before. Um, yes. So things like that, just to make make things easier um, for you. Thank you. Um, I also heard how you mentioned, you know, you see a lot of people who have ADHD can also present with anxiety or like, you know, sleep issues. Are there any other issues you've seen uh, that can be paired with ADHD? Depression is a comorbidity of um, ADHD, mainly because the world, right, is not set up for us. So after decades of being told you're lazy, like that's pretty depressing. Um, or decades of like these microaggressions, not even related to, like not even related to being black, also on top of that, but just the world not being set up for newer diverse people. Um, there is some science on this. I do not know a lot about the science, so I won't pretend to be an expert on this. But just the constant trauma that neurodiverse people go through, not even adding on being a woman or being black, um, a lot of us in our kind of older years, and by older, I don't even mean that old. I mean, starting in like 30, young 40s, start developing these autoimmune issues. Um, and I definitely believe the research is kind of just starting on that. But I definitely believe that's related to not specifically necessarily ADHD, but just the trauma you suffer as a neurodiverse person in a world that's not set up for neurodiverse people. You know, you, you mentioned not only being neurodivergent, but then when you add that intersectionality of being black and then being a woman, it's even more you have had to deal with and we continue to deal with. Um, and I just had like this class um, earlier this week um, and this one doctor was talking about how she's currently doing research on how racism affects the neurodivergence of black kids. I'm definitely interested on that. Like if she, whenever she publishes, let me know. I'm definitely gonna follow up on that and try to like just highlight that as well because it's also, mm -hmm. as we you know go through even more generations, it's affecting us and, and future generations like biologically. Right. I mean, the studies show that it is becoming part of our DNA, right? Like the studies have shown that. That is now a proven and accepted thing that trauma because becomes a part of your DNA that you then then pass down to your children. So yeah. Were there any other like maybe books, videos, um, any other or maybe social media accounts, any other accounts or anything that you would suggest uh, for people who may want to know more about ADHD, how to manage it, things like that? Well, I'm gonna give myself a shout out. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I think it's at Wonder Un Umbrella on both, but I'm just gonna send her the show notes. I'm gonna send her the link. But I also want to give a shout out to my friend Renee um, Brooks, and she's Black Girl Lost Keys. Um, she does a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I even send my patients to her, and I'm in Wisconsin. I'm like in white bread, Wisconsin, so I'm like. You can go to her page, even though you're not black. <laughs> but obviously her audience is black women, so she does a lot of work on that intersectionality, but even if you're not a black woman, she just does a lot of good work on ADHD in general. Um, I would say those are, that's, if you follow her on Twitter, she will then direct you on who else to follow, because she's like very connected in that world. <laughs> um, as far as books, uh, a lot of people, I have not read this, but a lot of people in my field really love Driven to Distraction. Um, I, where I wanted to issues with books for people with ADHD 
is that we're ADHD and we're not reading the whole book. Um, like, I love to read. Like, give me, like, a sci-fi book or a murder mystery book. Like, I'm going to read that whole thing. Give me something where I feel like I'm supposed to be learning from it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, just... <laughs> 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 I like articles. I do better with articles. I do better with podcasts. I like smaller chunks of information. But I did mm-hmm. hear that Driven to Distraction is really good. So there's a book called Neural Tribes that's more about autism, but it does hit on ADHD. It is really, really good. It also goes a lot into, again, how not great the medical community has been to neurodiverse people, um, specifically psychiatry. Like, I'm a psychiatrist, obviously. I love psychiatry, but we have a dark history. We have a really dark history. Um, There's another book. It's just called Neurodiversity. So Neurodiversity, that one's really good. And then the Neuro Tribes, that one's more, uh, like I said, it's more related to autism and it's more kind of the history of autism. But I think there's so many overlapping overlapping symptoms that I think it would be a really good read for anybody that's neurodiverse in general. Beautiful. And if people, like, you know, after listening to this podcast episode, they're like, oh my gosh, I want to stay in contact, I want to reach out. What's the best way for them to reach out to you, whether that's email, blog, like anything like that? Yeah, so my business website is www.insightfulconsultant.org, and I'll send that to you also. I do have a blog. I have not written on this blog in two years, but the information that's already there beautiful. is Beautiful, it's beautiful. And that's www.underoneumbrella.blog. Um, those are the best ways to reach me. There's a contact form on my website. Um, my website is actually being updated this week. Yay! Yay. So, hope, so very soon I have an email list. I can promise you, if you sign up for my email list, you won't be getting emails from me every day because I'm not going to be sending them every day. So you would definitely only get them with something important. We love that. We love that. Oh my gosh, love that. (laughs) (laughs) What is some final advice, last words of encouragement, anything that you would want the black community, especially young black girls and boys, um, non-gender conforming, like everyone to kind of hear and sit with? So I always tell everyone, find your people, whoever your people are, find your people. Um, that's usually easier to do in adulthood, um, but even in, you know, as a child, as much as you can, uh, you know, I guess children won't be listening, but teenagers, right? Find your people. Um, the other thing is develop a good mental health team. Now there, you know, there's the limitation of there's not a ton of black psychiatrists or there's not, there's not a ton of black therapists out there. Um, and I always say, if you have a therapist who, my therapist right now is actually not my psychiatrist is and then I have a spiritual advisor who's, who also is a psychiatrist but she does like oh I love her she does like some um, like indigenous African spirituality she's done like she's studied that for years so she's all helping me talk to the ancestors and stuff but anyway that's a whole different subject. <laughs> so bring it bringing it back in um, finding that even though if you can't find like a black female therapist finding somebody who knows that they're not a black female therapist and what I mean by that who understands uh, that they might need to do more work to be intersectional and who is not offended if you say, like, you know, um, maybe look this up because this is how it affects me and it doesn't affect me like that. So, um, yeah, I I definitely recommend finding a good mental health team. That has been super life-changing for me. Um, and like I said, most of my team are black women, but not all of them. And, and the ones that are not black women are still very good and understand as much as they can, I guess. <laughs> not being a black woman um so those are two things i would say get help therapy is great 
even if you're, you know, especially not in our culture, it's like, you know, we kind of get told to pray or talk to God about it. Um, I'm still very, I know a lot of people are kind of moving away from religious, but I'm still very religious. Uh, and I'm going to pray and talk to God and I'm going to take my medicine and I'm going to talk to my therapist. I love how, you know, you said you're doing both. So it's like, I think even within our community, you know, recognizing the hurt that we've caused each other or like, you know, just that stigma and how we've hidden away from stuff, recognizing how, like, yes, we have tools that can help, like, you know, you know, religion, praying to God, going to church, but also we have to recognize the other side and let that in to holistically treat someone. So I love that you mentioned those both sides and how we can work on that. So, and you know, one thing, this is really random, but black people used to have a much lower suicide rate because of religion. And a lot, and I'm not saying that's why we're more suicidal. I just think it's interesting that a lot of us are moving away for that for a valid reason, just like not trusting the medical community. Um, and our suicide rate has gone up. So we have to figure out a way to, like you said, combine them both, get a non-toxic spirituality that is helping us because it did help in some ways um, and it was harmful in other ways. So we need to like clear out those harmful parts, get that help, and then also, you know, bring in like actual mental health. Thank you so, so much. I think our list, my listeners are going to love this episode, and this is preserved in history. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode, and either something resonated with you, or you know you had a huge breakthrough, or you heard something that's going to connect to someone you know who may be going through these similar issues. And I hope it's just helpful to you along your mental health journey and just life journey in general. The general prompts for today are... What are you currently healing from that others don't see? What is one thing, big or small, that you're most looking forward to? What about it excites you the most? What does resentment feel like in your body? What does forgiveness feel like in your body? That's it. Make sure you're reflecting, journaling when it's on your heart, when you can do it. You know, don't beat yourself up if you fall off because that's what I've been doing. So don't, don't do that. And, you know, just give yourself grace and let it out. Let that out of your body, period. As always, you can stay connected with me on all my social media platforms, Instagram at Blaze Health, Twitter at Blaze Health Pod, and Facebook at the Blaze Health Podcast. And now we got a website, so blazehealth.info. Also, my email, blazehealthpod at gmail.com. And please apply for those free wellness services, okay? Blazehealth.info. And just spread all the love, news, and everything to those in your community. In addition, thank you to everybody who's been rocking with me since the beginning. From the older people to the new listeners, I appreciate each and every single one of y'all. And all the love, whether that is you listening, you downloading, you referring the podcast to someone, you liking a podcast episode, you rating it, you subscribing it, you're engaging with me. I appreciate it so much and I see each and every single one of y'all and I appreciate if you could continue to spread the word to people in your community and rate the podcast. Send me, let me know what you think. I want to make sure it's as interactive as possible and that, you know, we only going up from here. So it's all of us. We going up. We got to eat. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, have a good day, y'all. Bye.